1: In one description of the Buddha's enlightenment, he's sitting under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya, India. And it said that when he sat down, he sat with the resolve that he was not going to get up from his seat until he had achieved full realization. So imagine coming into the hall with that resolution. <laughs> Some indication of the strength of his mind and I guess his good karma, fortunately, that very evening. (laughs) So as, you know, the legend has it or the, the reality of it, as he sat under the tree and the night progressed, it said that different forms of Mara, and Mara is the embodiment of illusion or delusion or ignorance, the different forms of Mara appeared in his mind. You know, during the course of the night, there were terrifying visions of violence and aggression, and there were very seductive visions, you know, of heavenly and celestial pleasures. And then, in particular description, there's one line which, for me, captures the essence or characterizes. Uh, the whole path of practice is a beautiful description of the Bodhisattva's mind, you know, in this situation. So with all these forces of Mara coming to confront him, it said, and the mind of the great being was not moved. You know, just, just the image of that is sort of like a mountain sitting. You know, the mind of the great being was not moved. And not moved here is in the sense that Gina spoke so clearly about uh, last evening in terms of being non-reactive, right? The horrible things were arising, the beautiful things were arising. His mind remained non-reactive, unmoving. And this line can really be the reference point for all of our practices, as we go through the day and are watching and being with our various experiences in whatever posture we're in in whatever activity we're engaged with we can look and investigate what does have the power to move our minds you know what does have the power to agitate our hearts How does our mind get seduced by various experiences? This is what we can learn on retreat in the beauty of the silence and the retreat and the non-distracted awareness. We really learn about ourselves. Now, we experience agitation and seduction on both very obvious levels that we may be very familiar with, but also some very subtle levels of agitation and seduction. You know, we're all familiar with being overwhelmed by different emotions at times. So that's, I think, a familiar experience for all of us at one time or another. <clears throat> we can get lost in, or we could say seduced by various moods that we're in. And Become completely caught up in the mood or lost in and identified with the different thoughts that are running through our minds. And on the most subtle level, and this takes quite a bit of um, training and awareness to begin to see how we become identified with consciousness itself how we create a sense of self, a sense of ego self in our very identification with knowing. So there are all these levels, you know, to our practice. And as we deepen in our practice, we begin to explore these different levels. So in the teachings, the Buddha highlighted a number of these particularly seductive mind states. In a way, he made it easy for us but because he pointed out, he was very specific and very clear, these mind states have the power to seduce us, to trap us again and again. And he called them the five hindrances. And many of you are probably familiar with them, you know, of desire and aversion and sleepiness Restlessness and doubt. So it's essential in our practice that we learn how to recognize these particular states because they are deeply ingrained habits of mind. I mean, for me, it's both, uh, I, I don't know, I would say it's both encouraging and discouraging. At the same time, that these very states that we all experience right here, you know, of wanting and restlessness and sleepiness and doubt are the very same ones the Buddha was talking about 2,600 years ago. So these are universal patterns, you know, deep neural pathways in our brains. So we need to explore, we need to really learn about them because otherwise they dominate our lives. So we want to both explore the nature of these hindrances. What is each one like? How does each one manifest for ourselves in our own experience? And we also want to investigate what is it that makes them so alluring? Why is it that we get caught again and again and again? So we can see that. We can can really explore our own minds and discover this. What's a very helpful perspective as we explore these patterns in the mind, these hindrances, is to see that even though they may feel very personal to us, they are not personal, they're, they're impersonal. You know, these are, these are universal habit patterns of everyone's mind. And so if we see it, if we take it out of the personal, first, it helps us to disentangle a bit. And secondly, it then provides us with the understanding that right in the time of experiencing one of these hindrances, That is exactly the place where we can see for ourselves, explore for ourselves, what is ignorance, what is awareness, what is delusion, what is wakefulness. Right in the time of their arising, if we bring mindfulness to them, we're right at the heart of what it means to awaken, to wake up. If we have this attitude, then in a very surprising way, and I've experienced this many times, we actually become happy to see the hindrances. Because we'd rather see them and understand them than not see them and act them out. Right? So instead of being self-judgmental or thinking, oh, our practice is no good, Every time we actually are aware of one of the hindrances, oh, good. You know, th- this is a chance to understand something. You know, and so this, this changes our relationship uh, to these patterns. And the more we practice, the more we practice being with them and staying mindful of them, you know, these strong seductive emotions, the more stable our awareness becomes. It's as if we're actually in the stream of that line about the Bodhisattva and the mind of the great being was not moved. You know, so maybe for us, even if it's for a few moments at a time, as we experience different difficulties and our minds, somewhat less than great beings, are not moved. (laughs) But we can taste it. We can get a sense of of the potential. So tonight I'd like to speak about just two of the hindrances. Because a lot can be said about each one of them. But I wanted to go into a little more depth uh, about two in particular. And that is... Uh, The hindrances of doubt and aversion. So there are a couple of steps in working with all five of the hindrances. And the first step is learning how to recognize them when they arise. Because often these mind states will slip in and we don't even know they're there. You know, they're so seductive we get lost in them and we're just living in them and acting them out and we're not aware that they're present. So the first step is really learning to recognize them when they arise, to recognize the telltale signs of doubt and aversion and the rest as well. The reason this recognition is so important is as we'll see, very often these hindrances come disguised. They come masquerading as something helpful, as something good, as something skillful. And if we are not on the ball, we believe that. We fall for their disguise. So this recognition, this is a very key point. We have to see them for what they are and not be deceived, because Mara is exceedingly ingenious. You know, the mind can fool us in so many ways. So, doubt. To begin with, it's helpful to understand that in English, the word doubt can actually refer to several different mindsets. One of which is actually skillful and another is not skillful, not helpful. So what's the skillful kind of doubt? Well, that is the mind that inquires, that investigates, that doesn't just fall into dogmatic belief, right? And so the doubting mind in that sense is really helpful. It's like, what is this? What is this experience? What is it about? Not just assuming that we know, or believing something without examination. So that kind of doubt is good. And actually the Buddha encouraged that kind of inquiry. He said, find out for yourselves what is helpful, what is skillful, what is useful. Don't just believe. Don't believe what I say. Don't believe what's in the books. Really test it and see. So this is a good kind of doubt. The unskillful doubt, the one which really is a hindrance, we might just use the term skeptical doubt. And this is the mind state of endless uncertainty or indecision. You know, it's the opposite of being confident. It's like being at a crossroads. And not knowing which way to go. And the mind simply goes back and forth. Is it this way? Is it that way? Should I go this way? Should I go that way? And we don't go anyplace. So in that way, doubt really stops us in our tracks. Of all the hindrances, of all the five hindrances, skeptical doubt, when it's unnoticed, is the most harmful it's the most dangerous because it has the power to bring our practice and very often in different aspects in our lives it has the power to bring us to a standstill of not being able to move forward with all the other hindrances of desire and aversion and sleepiness and restlessness we're still in the we're still in the ballpark You know, we're kind of in the game. We're going through storms, but we're in there. When skeptical doubt is strong, we're not even in the game anymore. You know, that's the power of it. Because with doubt, this kind of doubt, it doesn't even give us the chance to take a wrong turn and then to learn from our mistakes. We're just, we're frozen through indecision, through uncertainty. Some of you may have read the book or seen the movie Life of Pi. Uh, The book was by Jan Martel. There's a wonderful line in the book which describes perfectly the debilitating power of doubt. He wrote, To choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immovability as a means of transportation. <laughs> That's what doubt does. So, although all of us have some degree of confidence in the Buddhist teachings, or we wouldn't be here, right? So, there's, there's some level of confidence that we all have. But still, doubt can operate even when we have, you know, a fair confidence in the teachings. Doubt still can show itself in so many different ways. You know, it can take the forms of doubt about the meditation practice. For all of us, at different times, difficulties are going to arise in our meditation. Okay, you've been here now, what full day, day and a half. Has anybody been here without any difficulty at all? I <laughs> Something or other. you know, disturbances in the mind or the body hurts, or something or other. difficulties are part of the path. They're an inevitable part of the path. This is normal. But when these difficulties arise, if they're not correctly understood, they can lead to doubting thoughts. Lead to doubting thoughts about what method of practice we're using. Different kinds of questions. Gina referred to a few of them this morning. What am I doing here? No, that's not an uncommon thought. What does sitting here, watching my breath, or feeling the movement in a step, what does this have anything to do with all the suffering that's in the world? You know, what? what is the connection? So that kind of thought can easily arise. Or we might start comparing practices. You know, many of you have probably done different practices, different kinds. You know, and so... Maybe I should be doing Tibetan chanting. You know, or maybe Zen. Zen really has it. You know, no sloppiness there. They they get right to it. You know, or maybe Sufi dancing would definitely be more fun. You know, so as we're sitting, struggling with the different difficulties that are going to come up in the practice, so these doubting thoughts are not uncommon. You know, where we start comparing and wondering and doubting. Or even within one tradition, even just within this tradition, doubting thoughts can arise. On one three-month retreat, there was one yogi. This was the most extreme case that in over 40 years of teaching I've ever come across. For three months, this yogi, could not make up his mind whether to do metta practice or vipassana practice, <laughs> and we tried everything. We said, "Oh well, just do vipassana," and okay, he would do it. And but the next interview, "Oh, maybe I should do metta." <laughs> okay, okay, that would be great. Metta is a great practice. Do metta. Next, no, maybe I should be doing vipassana. <laughs> This went on for three months. It was amazing. It was an amazing manifestation of the doubting mind, you know, and just couldn't unhook from that indecision. Some people, well, should I be feeling the breath of the abdomen or the nose? Well, no, the abdomen's better. Oh, no, maybe it's better up here. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the doubting mind. Should I practice a narrow, focused awareness on the breath? Or should I practice an open, choiceless awareness? Should I be making a heroic effort? You know, this is a rare opportunity. You have these days here, enlightenment or bust. (laughs) Or should I relax? Should I really just... Take it easy. I've been working really hard in my life. You know, let me just chill out. (laughs) All of these questions actually in themselves are fine, each one of them. You know, there's nothing wrong with any of those questions. It's when we get caught in the cycle of endless questioning, of endless doubt, never coming to a resolution, never resolving it for ourselves. That's what's in a problem. That's when it's a problem because then we're not doing anything. We're not doing either one or the other. So when we see this happening in the mind, it's important to recognize, to label, to note, oh, this is doubt, so that we're not fooled by it. know, we recognize this is the doubting mind. And in that moment, we're becoming mindful of it rather than lost in it. And right there, the mind has become free. Perhaps even more ingrained as a pattern than doubt about practices or doubt about particular techniques, techniques even more deeply ingrained for many people is the habit of self-doubt you know we may have faith in the in the practice in in the technique in the method but we doubt ourselves you know and this could take the form of thoughts like am i doing it right or i'm not doing it right or i can't do it you know, it's too hard. It's not the right time. There are so many other things going on in my life. And so all of these thoughts come which are undermining. Right? We're doubting our capacity to do the practice. Sometimes external situations can trigger self-doubt or even feelings of unworthiness. And These can be so easily triggered. It's amazing how sensitive the mind can be, and how easily it can fall into that form of self-doubt. So during the three-month retreat, we we put up the interview groups, and they're in four-day cycles. You know, so people are seeing two different teachers every other day. So there's a whole there's a chart, you know, and after each person's name. You know, there's uh, where there's the time and and the day. There's a letter after some people's name. There was an A, some people B, some people C, some people D. I'm sure you can imagine oh, there's a D after my name. (laughs) That person has an A after their name. can drive people into a tailspin. All that the letters represented were which day of the cycle people were being seen. You know, A and C were Monday and Wednesday, B and D were Tuesday and Thursday. That's all the letter meant. But the mind has such a tendency to interpret, right, without, without information, so that's just kind of another extreme form of self doubt, you know, where we, where we might feel unworthy. We personalize what's impersonal. It's really important to pay attention to all these forms of doubt, but I think particularly to the different forms of self doubt because this can become, you know, a tremendous obstacle not only in our meditation practice, but in our lives. If self-doubt is strong and unnoticed, it really becomes a debilitating force in our lives. It undermines us, you know, continually holds us back. But it's just a thought pattern in the mind we can actually see it and understand it and be free of it. There's a very interesting phrase in English, you know, where we say someone is plagued by doubt. That's an interesting phrase, plagued by doubt. Because doubt is like a plague. That's the effect it has. You know, instead of allowing us to make the experiment, whatever it may be, whether it's in meditation or anything else in our lives, instead of allowing us just to dive in and make the experiment and see for ourselves whether the particular activity has value or doesn't have value. When self doubt is there or different kinds of doubt, then we just get caught. You know, in this endless speculation, we're caught in a standstill. We don't do anything. So these doubts then have a self-fulfilling prophecy because staying lost in self-doubt really is useless. You know, and so it just is, is reaffirming itself. Yeah, this is useless. And it is useless because self-doubt doesn't allow us to move forward. So it's likened to a thorn that keeps jabbing. You know, and if there's a thorn that keeps jabbing, what happens? The mind gets irritable. It gets discouraged. You know, it gets dissatisfied. That's the effect that doubt has in the mind. Sometimes doubt comes from deeper feelings of unworthiness. You know, and this can be a deeply conditioned pattern for a whole variety of reasons, you know, in our lives where we don't feel worthy. So His Holiness the Dalai Lama had some really uh, uh, strikingly direct words about this. And it was actually, he, he was visiting IMS. This was back in the 70s. And somebody asked him a question about this. Uh, this unworthiness, I don't, or self-hatred, things like that. There wasn't even a word in Tibetan for that. It was so foreign to that culture. So if, he had to have it explained to him, you know, of, of what was meant. And so this, the question was, I do not feel worthwhile as a person. How can I work on this as a beginning meditation student? So this was his answer, and it was it was just so uh, strikingly direct. You should not be discouraged. Your feeling of I am of no value is wrong, absolutely wrong. You are deceiving yourself. So it's very striking, because usually, you know, in his talks, it's kind of very soft and cuddly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but
1: here he was just, he, it's just, that thought is a wrong thought. I'm of no value. So then later, there's another Tibetan teacher, uh, Sokni Rinpoche, who's a contemporary teacher, younger, and very, very skilled with Westerners. He was talking a little bit about this feeling of unworthiness. You know, that so many people feel, and he made an interesting distinction kind of building on what the Dalai Lama said. He said, the feeling is real, because we actually feel it. It's real, but not true. And I thought that was a very good way of understanding it. So we're not denying that the feeling is there, because we all do have it at, at different times. And it may be part of our experience, this feeling of being unworthy or not good enough or self-doubt. So it's real, but it is not true, because we all have the potential for awakening, for liberation. Okay. The Buddha highlighted the importance of working with these hindrances. I've been talking a lot about doubt, but this is true of all the hindrances The Buddha spoke very directly to how important it is to bring mindfulness to them. He said, when we attend to the hindrances carelessly, they cause lack of vision, lack of knowledge, are detrimental to wisdom, tend to vexation, and lead away from Nibbana, from enlightenment. So he's saying, if we don't attend to these mind states carefully, if we're careless about them in our meditation, in our lives, that has consequences. and causes lack of vision, lack of knowledge, detrimental to wisdom, tending to vexation, to being upset, leading away from awakening. So given all that, we may wonder, why is it that we get so caught up in them? You know, if they have such a uh, negative impact on our lives and our understanding, what is their seductive power? So if we take the first step of recognizing them when they arise, and this is essential, so I would really suggest and encourage you in your practice throughout the whole day, keep an eye out for the arising of doubt and the other hindrances as well, and some of which I talk about, but really keep an eye out for their arising. So you recognize them. Oh, that's doubt. That's doubt. So that's the first step. The second step is then understanding why the doubt is so seductive. Why do we believe it? We begin to see that the great allure of doubt is that it comes masquerading as wisdom. We hear this very wise-sounding voice in our minds. It sounds so reasonable and so valid, and so true, that we believe what it's saying. What's the point of doing this? Maybe some other time. I don't know. Aren't we already enlightened?
2: <laughs> I don't know.
1: Or I'm so hopeless. You know, I, I'm really hopeless. I can't do this. Um, the world's worst meditator <laughs> It's amazing how wise sounding these voices can be you know as if they're telling us the truth so we have to be we have to be on the alert not to be taken in by the masquerade you know of doubt as wisdom we have to see it for what it is. I'm doing a little editing here, I'm going on and on about doubt. <laughs> I want to get to a version. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: I just just one more thing. <laughs> if we can learn to really recognize it and see it and not be fooled by it. Right in that moment, in the moment of seeing doubt as doubt. Oh, this is a doubting thought. Right in that moment, we're awake. Right in that moment, we're aware. We see, at least for that moment, the empty, insubstantial nature of doubt. And that's tremendously liberating. And maybe at first we just see it for a few moments and then we're caught again. But if we keep practicing seeing doubt as doubt, we can really free our minds from this particular pattern. Uh, and it's tremendously enlivening, not only of our meditation, but of our entire lives. Okay, so another state that is very powerfully conditioned in our lives is aversion. Aversion. And we experience aversion in a wide variety of ways. It has many flavors. Anger. Hatred. Annoyance. Irritation. Fear. Ill will. The judging mind. All of these are just different manifestations of aversion. And they're all conditioned reactions to what we find unpleasant. Gina was talking about uh, this morning. Something unpleasant comes and our conditioned reaction in one way or another is to feel aversion to it. So this is the habit pattern. But as with doubt, we can learn to recognize this response We can investigate the nature of each of these mind states of anger, of hatred, of fear, of ill will, of annoyance and see why they have such a hold on our minds. Aversion arises in some pretty predictable ways. One of the most obvious, which has already been talked about and you've seen probably many times today, it arises very easily with regard to physical pain. You know, we're sitting or moving about, or just in our lives, there's pain in the body. It's a rare individual who will say, oh, good. (laughs) Maybe now, after a few days of practice, you can do that. But mostly the conditioned reaction is, I don't like this, right? And. So we feel the contraction, the pushing away, the aversion towards it. You know, the dislike of it, even sometimes the hatred of it. And we can pick up the aversion, we can notice the aversion, even if we don't catch it immediately as a mind state, but you can feel it or signal that it's there is when you feel that contraction of the body in response to pain. Don't you feel that there's some kind of pain? And whether on an obvious or subtle level, it's like we tense against it. We don't want to let it in. We don't want to experience it, to feel it. That's an indication of the aversion in the mind, not liking it. So one little meditative hint. What I'm about to say can save you lifetimes (laughs) of suffering. (laughs) And this is... (laughs) 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 When you're struggling, when you're struggling, whether it's in meditation or in anything else, struggle means one thing. Struggle means that something is going on that in that moment you're not accepting. Because if you were accepting it, you wouldn't be struggling. Now, you don't want to misinterpret this in the sense Acceptance does not mean not doing anything about it. Acceptance means we're there and we are connecting with what's there in an open way. We're actually feeling it, experiencing it, and then seeing what should be done about it. But the sense of struggle itself, and this comes up, and I'm speaking a lot about meditation because it comes up so frequently, When you're sitting or even walking and you feel like you're struggling in your practice, take a look. Just settle back and ask yourself the question, okay, what is it that I'm not open to? It might be a physical pain. It might be a certain unpleasant emotion. It might be the fact that your mind is wandering a lot. The mind is struggling because it's not accepting of that. So there's a... A youngish Burmese teacher who's become quite popular in these last years in the West. His name is Sayadaw Tejaniya. And he has a very, uh, very down to earth and common sense approach to meditation. He says, you have to accept and watch both pleasant and unpleasant experiences. You only want pleasant experiences. You don't want even the tiniest unpleasant experience. Is this fair? (laughs) Is this the way of the Dharma? You know, so he's just pointing out, he's just pointing out that life consists of pleasant and unpleasant. And our practice, and it needs practice, we need to practice it, is being willing to open to both. Because otherwise, we're in a place of struggle. Otherwise, we're reinforcing and strengthening the pattern of aversion, of anger, of hatred, of dislike, of irritation, of annoyance. So in working with the physical pain in the body, and it takes practice. When I first started sitting, when I first went in this was a million years ago, I couldn't sit for five minutes cross-legged. Uh, the pain was so intense and I didn't have any concentration and I was struggling a lot. It took a long time to really settle in and slowly the ability to be with unpleasantness, that ability slowly and gradually grew over time. There's still a lot more to do as well. So you want to understand it as a practice, but as an essential practice. This is part of what we're doing here. So we can see aversion arise very clearly with respect to physical pain. We can see different forms of aversion arise when we think about, you know, unpleasant situations or things that have happened in the past that were unpleasant, some event. You know, we think about it and then we get angry or annoyed or irritated. This is common. You know, you're just sitting here, minding your own business, feeling your breath. And then all of a sudden you'll remember something that was difficult. You know, in the mind, all of a sudden, the aversion is there, the anger is there, the ill will is there. What's really happening in that moment? We're getting angry at a thought. We're not in the situation in the moment. What's happening is a thought is arising and we're getting angry at the thought. So my first teacher, Munindraji, he had a wonderful line. He said, the thought of your mother is not your mother. (laughs) It's a thought. (laughs) The thought of anything is not the thing. It's a thought. And this is not to say that thoughts aren't useful, and we use them, and we can use them skillfully, and we need to. But we want to understand what they are. We can also get angry at imagined things, imagining things in the future that haven't happened. I I had the most interesting example of this This is quite a few years ago. We were about to have a board of directors meeting and there was some contentious something. Gina was president of our board for a while. I don't know if it was during your time or not. (laughs) But anyway, it was just one of those meetings where I knew there was going to be some disagreement. So I was walking the loop. I was just going for a walk around the loop. And I was anticipating this discussion. So I would have this thought in my mind. And it was so amazing. Just the thought of the anticipated discussion in that moment anger arose in my mind. And it was so surprising to me of just, what's going on here? You know, how did this happen? That I kept purposely having the thought
2: <laughs>
1: just to watch the anger arise. <laughs> because it was fascinating to me, just this connection between thought and emotion. You know, what's going on in our systems? That here there's a thought and... Psh- and just in the moment, it can trigger a very strong emotion. So it's really interesting to watch that and to see how in many cases we are getting angry or upset about things that have not even happened. We're just thinking they might happen. <laughs> so in talking about all this, it's also extremely important, and I, I know you you know this very well, is to understand that powerful emotions can sometimes be conveying very important information for us. So it's not to say that we shouldn't be having them. That's not what this is about. Because sometimes there may be a strong feeling of anger or outrage, you know, at injustice. Or at oppression, or about a lot of things that need a jo- or you know some situation in our lives where boundaries need to be set in some way. So sometimes these strong emotions are actually conveying important information for us. So we want to understand that. But can we be mindful enough of our experience? Mindful enough of the emotion of understanding it? So that we see it, we take the information, but are not overwhelmed. We don't drown in the emotion, so that we can actually act effectively, act in a way that's not harmful to either ourselves or others. So there's a lot of there's a lot of subtlety in terms of understanding, especially uh, this particular hindrance, you know, of aversion or anger. Uh, And to see uh, those situations when there's something we need to pay attention to, but then to use it, use the energy of it skillfully and wisely and compassionately. So there's a lot here. You know, this, you think you're just sitting here in, out, in, out, in, out, (laughs) but really sitting here, it's your whole life. It's your whole life is manifesting. You know, the life of your body, the life of your heart, the life of your mind. And the beauty of a retreat is you have nothing else to do except to observe it all. I mean, what a gift. It is a real privilege, you know, in this world to have the time to be doing just this. You know, to be understanding these elements of ourselves in our lives in such a careful way. You know, we can get annoyed, irritated, just by little things on retreat. You know, if we are going through a difficult time and maybe we're feeling grumpy or discouraged, the littlest thing that somebody else does can irritate us no end. There's something... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there, there are two. There are two opposing. Uh, what's the word? Patterns that often arise on retreat. On the one side, there's often the vipassana romance. You know, where people just fall in love with somebody. They don't even know them. They haven't spoken to them. But you know, already in your mind, you're married. You have kids. <laughs> but the other side of that is the vipassana vendetta. <laughs> Where there's one person or more on the retreat who just drives you crazy. You know, you don't like the way they walk and you don't like anything. You know, whatever they do, you get irritated. Again, you don't know them. You haven't spoken a word to them. It's all a projection of one's own mind. But it happens, you know. And so this is also a good example not to get caught by these patterns, but to say, oh, that's aversion. That's ill will. You know. So we begin to see and understand it, so we're not identified with it. We see it as just a passing thought in the mind. We really can free ourselves. Okay, one that this is I hadn't planned to talk about this, but it's one little exercise you could do and ties in to working with this kind of aversion. When I was on retreat, I'd done many retreats here, you know, as a yogi. And on one retreat, I noticed that every time I walked into the dining room for a meal, my mind would have a comment about every single person.
2: <laughs>
1: and mostly judgmental, <laughs> you know, whatever, you know, but, but, and it was ridiculous. It was. I mean, it was totally ridiculous, but that's what the mind was doing. So then I realized that all of that, all of those kind of aversive type thoughts, they were all being triggered because I wasn't being mindful that I was seeing. Because all of those thoughts came from making, I was seeing different people. So what I decided to do every time I went into the dining room, all I would note was seeing, 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 seeing. So I was just staying very mindful just of the bare seeing. Those judgments all disappeared. It was amazing. Something that felt like such a, a strong habit pattern of mind. As soon as I saw what the cause was, what, the, what was feeding them, this is what we can explore. You know, we actually can free our minds from these patterns that cause so much suffering, either big or small, you know, to ourselves and others. So a question after we learn to recognize the various forms aversion take for us, and they're, they're quite individualized, you know, we have to see each one for ourselves. You know, what form does our aversion take? But then it gets interesting to ask the same question as we did with doubt, why is it so seductive? It doesn't feel good, you know, to be angry or to be filled with ill will or judgment. So why are we seduced by it again and again? So one of the great seductions of anger and of ill will, not in every case, but this is one of the big ones, is the is the very sweet feeling of being right. You know, we justify the anger to ourselves because we feel right. Look at what that person is doing, you know, and we're so caught up in our own sense of rightness. The Buddha described it so beautifully. He said anger with its poisoned source and honeyed tip. You know, it does have that honey tip. You know, and we're feeling kind of self righteous in our anger. Does these are kind of you know, we feel energized by that. But we're not seeing the suffering, you know, of the source. When we're filled with anger, even though we're justifying it to ourselves by that honey tip, by being or feeling right, we're missing the fact that we're the ones who are suffering. It's like holding on to a hot burning coal. My first teacher, Meninjaji, would often give three-hour Dharma talks. (laughs) And I hated them. (laughs) So I am... Very conscious. (laughs) (laughs) There's definitely another hour here. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to wrap this up. (laughs) One of the things we need to be watchful of, as we're working with aversion, first to see how we can feed it, you know, by this feeling of being right and justifying it to ourselves and missing the suffering that's really there. Another way we feed the aversion in us is by having aversion to it. So if we're judging the anger or judging the ill will, you know, or... Having aversion towards the aversion. It's not a very effective strategy. Because we're just feeding it. We're just strengthening it. And so we have to really become aware of our attitude about the aversion when it arises. And remember, aversion can take many forms. Anger, hatred, fear, irritation, annoyance. It's a whole range. What's our attitude towards these feelings? If you hate these feelings... And if you have aversion to them, if you want to get rid of them, you are strengthening them. So you need to check the added as these feelings come up. Oh, fear feels like this. You want to be investigating it. Anger. Oh, this feels like this. This is what it's like. You know, rage feels like this. So we're not condemning it and we're not identifying with it. We're just exploring its nature. And in that, we begin to see its very impermanent nature. It's there out of certain conditions, and it passes away. I just want to read uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. You know, he writes so beautifully, the Vietnamese Zen master and peace activist, he writes so beautifully and speaks so beautifully. He says, the Buddhist attitude is to take care of anger. We don't suppress it. We don't run away from it. We just breathe and hold our anger in our arms with utmost tenderness. The anger is no longer alone. It is with our mindfulness. If you keep breathing, mindfulness particles will infiltrate the anger. If you keep shining your compassion and understanding on it, your anger will soon crack and you will be able to look into its depths and see its roots. So that's how we have to hold it, and that's how we can come to understand it. So we'll be talking more about this in our meditation practice and the other hindrances. But I hope you have some sense of how important it is to really be open to and understand and investigate these powerful tendencies of mind. Because if we don't, then we're just acting them out in our lives. And it causes a lot of trouble and suffering for ourselves and for others. But when we can be mindful of them, they're going to come. These are universal forces in the mind. If we can be mindful of them, they actually become the path to our awakening. And that's that's really what our practice is about. Thank you.